Oh, hello everyone. This is uh, data-driven Formula One with Patrick Hansen. Gana Pagrebna. Hello, Gana. Hello, everybody. Hi. So today we have a very exciting topic uh, of uh, yes. uh, a company that made caravans and then decided to do Formula One cars. Exactly. And uh, I mean, one of the interesting uh, things is uh, we are doing now the Formula One since 1950. We are just uh, arrived in 1972. And sometimes uh, uh, beyond the stories about uh, the big winners, the big teams, you also find our and learn about the little stories about the small players and sometimes the stories of the small ones uh, the same interesting as uh, of, of the big ones. And I think uh, here we have uh, one of these stories and uh, we called it the unlikely story of the Eiffelland uh, caravan Formula One team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you already pointed out, uh, 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 this is uh, a story of a company. And uh, when we speak about the company, we have to start uh, with the founder which was Günther Venerici. He was uh, the co-owner of the uh, Eiffelland uh, company, a company manufacturing uh, caravans. The name uh, Eiffel, for the ones in Germany, you know, it's uh, these are the mountains near the border uh, to uh, Belgium and also very similar um, to the Netherlands. As European, you know that uh, Dutch people are famous for various things. And uh, one of the things is that uh, they like uh, traveling and especially they like traveling with caravans. Uh, so uh, no conscience uh, that this German company was quite near to the uh, borders, uh, to the Netherlands, which is not only uh, the same market, but of course uh, in this area near the borders, we share somehow a similar um, culture. Mm -hmm. It yeah, was a very yes. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to mention that we uh, uh, we discussed uh, several kind of unlikely uh, 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 entrance uh, to Formula One. So, for example, we have an episode on Alta Moda where it was a fashion company that decided right. to. And then, of course, we talked a little bit about Benetton. We didn't talk about them specifically, but we have an episode on uh, Italian business and. Uh, there, there are quite a few companies uh, that's um, kind of uh, unlikely uh, uh, entrance, and we will talk about some of them today as well, I believe, when we when we get uh, um, to kind of other uh, uh, other other examples. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is quite an unusual. Uh, way of entering uh, Formula One, so because you're not really uh, uh, in a luxury car market, right? So, and, and uh, that's quite a big ambition for a company like that to think that they could um, make a fast exactly. car. Exactly. Uh, Günther Hennerci, uh, on the one hand, uh, he was a businessman and he uh, correctly identified that for many, many years we didn't have any uh, German uh, race teams in uh, Formula One. So uh, he thought, uh, why not to do it? And also with the uh, idea that Formula One in the 70s uh, was quite a, a magnet uh, for attention. A lot of spectators, it became more and more so an ideal uh, scenario to present the Eiffelland brand and get uh, attention. So one of the ideas besides that he was uh, 
motorsports fan was, of course, also the marketing uh, point of view. Uh, interesting, he was married with uh, a racing driver, with Hannelore Werner, which uh, was uh, quite well known in the 1970s. Uh, and I think she was the fastest, you can uh, for sure say she was the fastest uh, female driver, German driver in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the dream uh, was quite short, uh, not even one uh, complete uh, season and uh, we come for the reasons a little bit uh, later. Uh, but also I will show you some statistics which uh, show that uh, Eifeland, yes, it was not uh, a successful dream, but it was by far not um, the worst team ever in Formula One. In fact, the results had been quite uh, good if you compare them with the uh, March factory team. And I will explain you later a little bit why you can compare them with March. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, Günther Henrici um, already died uh, in uh, the year 2000 uh, as a result of a heart attack. Yeah, so we also, yeah, we, we did discuss uh, several teams uh, that, well, for example, Walter would have been one of them where, you know, the starting position was quite good, right? And they could pull, the, pull it off, but uh, the management kind of completely screwed it up. So this is not the case here. So here exactly. actually management was uh, making the right decisions. I think it was, uh, well, Patrick will come to yes. that, for the, come to the reasons <laughs> why they didn't manage to, to, to compete more and compete more successfully. But uh, one thing we can tell you that it wasn't a management problem. It was other, exactly. other reasons. And it's a quite colorful uh, story. So it's quite surprisingly why nobody in, in Germany or nobody at Netflix uh, discovered it would be a great uh, source for a, sh a movie, to be honest. Yeah, so if you are a Netflix uh, script writer, by all means, uh, read more about this team. <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, Eifeland, um, I said it was uh, uh, Mr. Enrici's, uh, he was one of the co-owners, so it was an independent uh, company. Unfortunately, uh, there was a fire uh, in 1972, and uh, due, to, due to this, he had to sell uh, the company and uh, also later stop his ambitions in Formula One. So, uh, so he sold the company to the Knaus Tabat AG, uh, uh, where Eifeland uh, continued uh, living uh, for a couple of years uh, as a brand. Uh, production changed from uh, Germany to Poland, and in the last years, uh, the, um, the brand uh, Eifeland uh, targeted mainly the Dutch market for the obvious reason, which I already explained. So here you see some of the very last uh, prospects, uh, which I received uh, from the Knaus Tabat AG. So a big thank you to Stefan Diel, who virtually had to climb down the archives of the company as the brand does not exist anymore uh, for various uh, years now. So, but it, it's nice to, to see, so now you have a better impression what this company uh, was uh, doing. So uh, a strange idea that somebody who does caravans uh, thinks, what is my next steps? Yes, let's do a Formula One uh, car. But on the other hand, it was not such a, a strange uh, idea because others uh, did this uh, before. 
So here on the left, you see the 1963 Honda 336, a typical uh, Japanese small truck. And this was the cast that Honda built before uh, Mr. Honda got the idea, I want to go uh, into Formula One. So when uh, the first time Honda entered, they not had been a car manufacturer, they not had been selling, not even had been selling the well-known Roadster in the, from the 1960s or the Sedan or any other cars. The only car they had been doing when they took the decision to enter Formula One was this T360. A brand which is not that much uh, aligned with uh, Formula One. And uh, in some later uh, episode, we will explain why, because later, yes, they entered with an engine, but originally uh, Mr. Lamborghini never wanted to enter motorsports. So what they did uh, before, first uh, they did tractors. Uh, he became very rich with uh, selling these tractors. Uh, due to this, he had the money to buy uh, Ferrari streetcars, which, uh, which they not, he wasn't very uh, happy. He uh, complained to Enzo Ferrari and uh, it's never good to uh, to complain to Enzo Ferrari about Ferrari. Products, <laughs> especially if you're not in his uh, circle of, of friends uh, or trusted people. So he, he tell them, uh, stop uh, complaining and uh, continue uh, doing your tractors. And uh, of course, also uh, Mr. Lamborghini, uh, Ferrucci Lamborghini, uh, uh, was a, a very proud Italian and, you, and he thought if he doesn't uh, want me, that I buy his cars, then I uh, do my own cars and he started uh, the Lamborghini uh, car manufacturing. Okay, uh, and uh, besides this, uh, here on the left, uh, you see a 1970s caravan. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't found a picture from an Eiffel one, but this is the uh, caravan from the Knaus uh, Tabard. AG, which later bought uh, Eiffeland. So this is the kind of the kinds of caravans uh, which had been um, uh, been on the streets in the 1970s. Well, uh, if I see the car, it must be a Ford Taunus, so it must be late 70s, a little bit later after uh, Eiffeland was in Formula One. But nevertheless, the the design not changed very much in the 1970s. Yeah, I have a funny story about caravans. Um, so I just uh, discovered that not only Dutch people are really fond of them, but also uh, uh, people in New Zealand really like traveling uh, using caravans uh, for obvious reasons. You know, it's a beautiful country and, uh, you know, uh, finding kind of places to stay is probably quite a big headache. Um, so it's a lot easier to go in a caravan and they have like local caravans, uh, they're called Juicy, this company, and uh, it's uh, like bright green caravan, it's really, really this uh, bright green color. And uh, uh, some of uh, some of my friends were saying, oh, if you go to New Zealand, you should get the juicy caravan. And I, th I thought it was just uh, an expression, <laughs> but actually it is a company. <laughs> so juicy, juicy caravan. So um, yeah, so so I think, um, yeah, well, it, it, is, it is funny how, you know, different sort of national traditions have, you know, caravans uh, um, as kind of main holiday transport and certainly caravans are very popular uh, in Europe and uh, in Netherlands in particular. So, and, but, uh, and it's really cool that uh, we had this team 
tried uh, so that they were able to do it, at least to try. Uh, so that's quite inspiring. Exactly. And uh, here you see a, a map. Uh, Mayen, a small city uh, near to the German city of uh, Koblenz. Mm -hmm. The city is famous for the German uh, edge or the Deutsche Egg, where the two rivers Rhine and uh, Main uh, come uh, together. It's quite near to the Nürburgring, only 42 kilometers. A little bit further, uh, we also find uh, Spa, Frank or Schaub is 171 kilometers. Also relatively uh, near uh, would be uh, Zolder, the other Belgium uh, racetrack. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's uh, come back uh, to the motorsport uh, history. They first uh, started uh, entering uh, in Formula 2. Uh, they not tried to build their own car, uh, quite uh, as it's still possible in the beginning of the 1970s. They went uh, to March and they bought one of their Formula 2 cars. Uh, also, they uh, sorry, they bought not a March, they bought a Brabham BT30 with the Formula 2 uh, specifications. Uh, they could win a quite a skilled uh, driver. Uh, with, with uh, Rolf uh, Stommelen, uh, who also uh, continued uh, with um, Eifeland until 72. And uh, regarding the championship, uh, this was an advantage because uh, Rolf Stommelen uh, was uh, more famous in endurance car with sports cars, so he drove for uh, Porsche and uh, in, in the beginning of the 1970s also for the Alfa Romeo driving the famous uh, 33 prototypes and with this he, as a quite experienced driver uh, he didn't uh, crash that much which is especially important uh, for a small team because you get more and more kilometers to gain experience and of course uh, with uh, less crashes you have uh, less uh, costs. Uh, on the other hand, there was a small disadvantage as uh, he had an A, a license, uh, he couldn't score officially points in the European Championships. Um, I've Lance stayed uh, two years in Formula 2 until uh, they sought to take the next step, and, uh, which is uh, logically Formula 1. Yeah, so, so that's, I think, also very important because uh, they didn't just go blindly into Formula yes. One. Uh, so they tried Formula Two and thought that they could be potentially competitive there. And that's why they, they decided to make that move, which, uh, which is why we, we had the chance to see them in the championship in 1972. Right. Uh, in 1972, they had been a very small team. Uh, we are speaking here about a team with uh, four or uh, five uh, people plus the uh, driver. Um, and uh, a little bit similar as we discussed in one of our episodes, sim as Toyota, which had their, no, sorry, uh, Andrea Moda, which had uh, their Formula One team at site of the factory. Uh, the same was true also for Eiffelland. They had their Formula One team uh, on the factory uh, location. Uh, again, um, they had uh, the luck uh, to work with uh, Rolf uh, uh, Johann Stormelen, who was uh, a driver in uh, not only German, uh, but also from Siegen, so quite near uh, Mayen, uh, quite uh, local. He participated uh, in total in 63 Formula One uh, championships 
never made it that big uh, inside this championship. And uh, maybe similar to uh, Jackie X, he was uh, maybe not uh, so fast on the short, but uh, fast on the long run. So he was more famous in endurance uh, sport. And due to this, for example, could win four times the 24 hours of uh, Daytona and also had been uh, successful in the Italian Targa Florio earlier in 1967. Mm -hmm. Did he die in racing because uh, he only lived yes. uh, 40 years, right? Uh, that's, yes, yeah. uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and I will come uh, to his death. Yes, he drove, uh, mm -hmm. he died here in the US in uh, such an endurance race. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, besides, uh, um, Eiffel Land, he also drove uh, for Graham Hill and uh, here uh, he had uh, one uh, very uh, unlucky, tra very tra um, uh, tragical uh, accident, something similar which happened to another uh, German with Wolfgang Berge von Trips, uh, uh, he had an accident um, and uh, uh, this also is car at the, due to this event into the spectators where uh, five spectators died, uh, but he uh, survived and also continued uh, with the sports. Uh, not his fault, but uh, uh, there was the problem that the wing of his uh, hill uh, racing car broke and due to this he lost the control of the car and this happened at the uh, 1975 uh, Grand Prix of uh, Spain. So something which more in detail we will uh, also discuss when we speak about that particular season. Uh, as a German, uh, it was quite difficult uh, um, to go into Formula One in the 1970s, also until the end of 1980s, because it was very difficult uh, to get a sponsor. And maybe this, uh, do, maybe still uh, due to the accident that uh, Mercedes uh, faced in the more German companies for whatever reason not really wanted to invest into uh, Formula One and this may be one of the reasons why Germany not had many successful drivers practically until uh, Michael Schumacher entered um, the sports. Mm -hmm. As I said, uh, he was, uh, after his recovery, he was mostly uh, driving in endurance sports like Daytona or Le Mans, etc. But uh, from time to time, he had also the chance uh, to drive uh, in Formula One as uh, this as a temporary replacement often or sometimes also when a new third driver had been uh, needed for whatever reason. For this, for example, he had the opportunity in 76 to drive this very beautiful uh, Brabham. Yeah, very careful. Yes, with the typical uh, Martini design, which one of the most famous libraries, I think, in Formula One. Um, as mentioned, uh, unfortunately, he died uh, also in uh, motorsports, not in uh, Formula One, but in endurance uh, here in the US. Uh, for the Porsche team, uh, where he was uh, driving um, together with uh, Derek uh, Bell, as again, same as in, in uh, Formula One, a rear wing broke due to a mechanical failure. 
and this at 310 kilometers per hour. And of course, as a driver, you lose completely the control over the car. And this time, uh, he wasn't that lucky for himself uh, and as he died. As often uh, with such tragic accidents, there are various uh, stories around them. Some may be urban legends, may, some may be true, so it's difficult uh, to say uh, now. But it was uh, said that uh, he wasn't planned uh, to drive at this race. But another German driver who, who also uh, will be in the 1970s in uh, Formula One, uh, Jochen Maas, uh, mm -hmm. He uh, cancelled uh, his uh, ride um, with Derek Bell and uh, as an other option, uh, Jochen Maas uh, was uh, called and this is the reason why he flew uh, to the US instead of Jochen Maas. And another thing what is uh, being rumored is that uh, he was already 40 years, uh, is that he should have uh, promised his wife that this would have been the last uh, year and after this, he wanted to uh, retire. Mm -hmm. um, if it's true or not, difficult to say uh, now. Um, on the photo, you see for the people uh, who are listening to us uh, from Cologne, Köln, or the regions around, uh, the uh, Milatenfriedhof is a quite uh, famous, uh, bigger um, graveyard. Cemetery. In, uh, cemetery. Yes, uh, in Cologne, and uh, this is where uh, his grave is now in his together uh, with uh, his parents. Mm -hmm. So again, he never made it that big in uh, Formula One, but nevertheless, he had been active uh, from the beginning till quite at the end in the 1970s with uh, various smaller uh, teams. He started uh, first time in 1970s, and here he already got 10 points, so it was practically his best year related to points. Uh, he drove uh, for the Automotor and Sport team. Uh, Automotor and Sport is uh, Germany's um, most famous car uh, magazine. Then he uh, uh, joined in 1971 the Sortis team. They still got three points. Eiffelland uh, without uh, points. And then again, he had the opportunity to drive once for Brabham in mm. 1973. 1974 uh, and uh, 1975, he drove for uh, Graham Hill. Unfortunately, also without points. And after this, again, he returned uh, to Brabham uh, and also the Heskes team and no points. And last year had been the Eros team. Yeah. Like you said, he was mostly kind of replacing, right, uh, at that stage. Yes. Uh, yes, and again, there may be various reasons as one, yes, maybe he was better on the long run than in, on the short uh, stints like in Formula One. But also, uh, he didn't get uh, much uh, the, the required sponsors to get in better teams uh, and so on. It's always a connection of a lot of uh, different factors but uh, and I will come to this he was a, a quite a good driver even if maybe not the fastest but he didn't produce uh, many crashes so quite good for a smaller or smaller medium-sized team. Yes,
So he was a very this, reliable uh, exactly. driver. He was a very reliable driver. With this, we come to a very colorful person, also known outside Formula One. I'm uh, talking about uh, Luigi Colani, or uh, born as Lutz Colani, as he was. Uh, his parents had been Swiss and uh, German, but uh, in the beginning of his career, he changed uh, his first name from Lutz uh, to the Italian version Luigi, uh, which maybe uh, is related to his uh, Swiss um, uh, roots. I'm not quite sure if uh, this had been related to the Italian part uh, of Switzerland, but I would assume as Colani sounds quite uh, Italian. And of course, he was quite influenced by uh, Italian design. So he also uh, worked uh, with uh, Italian cars like Abbas or um, Alfa Romeo and later a quite interesting uh, Ferrari. Uh, he, he was very famous uh, as a designer. So he did practically everything mm -hmm. uh, from computers, cars, uh, lamps, seats, uh, musical instruments, cars, trucks. So I think TV. there's nothing, <laughs> nothing which he didn't do. Television, yeah, yeah, he did a lot of things. Yeah. Exactly, and as he said, uh, you know him from television, and I think everybody in Germany knew him from television because he was not only a famous uh, designer; he was also an expert uh, to sell uh, himself, and he was very intelligent. So he was very good with. With cameras, he enjoyed uh, standing in the middle, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and also and so. He was born in uh, 1928 in uh, Berlin, in Germany, and he died uh, two years ago uh, in uh, Karlsruhe, uh, where he also had his uh, studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the, in the, uh, if you follow us on YouTube, here on the background, here you see one of his creations. Uh, monocoque uh, BMW. His uh, vision as a designer was that everything has uh, to be round. And uh, here I, uh, you see, I think one of his most uh, famous quote, the earth is round, all the heavenly bodies are round. They all move on round or ecliptical orbits. The same image of circular globe-shaped mini worlds orbiting around each other follows us right down the microcosmos. We are even aroused by rounds formed in spacious propagation-related erosism. Why should I join the straying mass who wants to make everything angular? I'm going to pursue Galileo Galilei's philosophy. My world is also around. So this was his uh, philosophy and also, I mean, it shows uh, him as a character uh, who likes uh, to stand uh, in the little and uh, practically in all uh, of his interviews, he underlined uh, that he has the knowledge and others are somehow on the wrong way. <laughs> uh, and, I come, uh, and I come to this also when I, you speak. I know better. Yeah. I'm not bossy, I just have better ideas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and this is also, uh, as they have marketed, uh, the first version of the Eiffelland uh, Formula One car uh, right in the beginning where um, uh, Colani proudly presented uh, the car and quite provocative uh, was he, he practically he said that everybody else in formula one has it wrong but uh, he knows the way and this 
and uh, he's the uh, the best uh, the person who uh, will shape the future uh, of, of racing so this is the way uh, he was but um, it sounds quite negative uh, when i'm telling you this is for people who, who know him who saw him on, on tele, uh, from tv for example know that Yes, he was quite high self-esteem, but on the other way, he was very friendly person, uh, very funny person. So you, so you, you can't felt bad at him. You somehow had to like him, even yeah, so, with his attitude. So yeah, I think if we uh, look in for for a prototype of him, like you, um, if you are from a younger generation, so this guy was uh, more like uh, Iron Man, you know. So Iron Man normally yes. has in in uh, in all the movies, right? Uh, this the character is quite uh, uh, has has a lot of charisma and really kind of self assured and uh, is making bold statements all the time, but. Uh, these statements are not exactly completely empty, so there, are, there is uh, some uh, some work behind. Uh, yes. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it appears like a very bold statement, but actually, yeah, it's not, uh, you know, it's not based on nothing in a sense. It is based on exactly. I think this is a very good uh, comparison. Uh, comparing him with Tony Stark, uh, the Stark, Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so here I uh, we see some of his uh, designs of his uh, successful designs. Uh, on the right, you see the famous uh, red piano, which uh, you could um, buy. I'm not sure if you're still able to buy it, but uh, a lot of famous uh, people um, got this, uh, including uh, Prince and uh, Lenny Kravitz. Mm -hmm. On the left, you see a workstation. I'm not, unfortunately, I didn't found from which year it is. I would assume it must have uh, at least 15 years uh, because I think it's still not a flat screen as mm -hmm. far as it looks. Uh, I think this went never into production, but I know that uh, since one or two years, you can find workstations like this, uh, of course, I would love to have such of these workstations, but they cost around 8,000 <laughs> US dollars. And that's where the dream stopped. <laughs> but but maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> maybe someday. <laughs> so if somebody wants to uh, sponsor our, uh, our YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, so yeah, the, the money will go into gadgets, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly, so uh, yeah, that looks so cool. exactly, even if not produced uh, by Kolani, uh, now we can buy this workstation, which I assume ergonomically uh, must be very good. Yeah, definitely, the piano is uh, quite an iconic thing, and uh. Yeah, yes. and, and the trucks. <laughs> and the trucks, yes. The trucks have been very well known as far as I remember. So yeah. you did the different uh, designs uh, for uh, Mercedes-Benz. So you, you see uh, from these examples, he really his uh, vision was to design everything round, which is, um, to be honest, a very good uh, approach, especially for... Uh, machines um, for aerodynamics should, uh, yeah not only aerodynamics but also from a psychological uh, point of view machines with uh, which which you should have worked together uh, for example the piano 
where these round curves uh, may be already an inspiration uh, for the artist, maybe a better inspiration than sitting on a normal uh, piano. So really, he, um, he followed uh, an idea what we have now maybe in uh, what we call a stream education, where we have on the one hand uh, science, um, engineering, but also art, Uh, and literature on the other side because they all interact together and having uh, products, machines uh, designed in a more human way may inspire uh, human, human co-workers, employees, etc., students uh, more than uh, just uh, something um, angularly designed as he, as he included in his uh, quote. Yeah, um, so I have uh, several friends who actually work on this uh, um, aerodynamic tracks, and uh, even though they're, they're not uh, kind of colony designs, they are very close to, I mean, it's the same idea that I think they yeah. are currently using. And uh, yeah, an another cool problem there is uh, how to design packaging uh, for, you know, like for, for tracks uh, that would yeah. be of that shape. Uh, and now, you know, the, I think uh, uh, the majority of trucks have some sort of, uh, well, at least uh, in the most progressive truck companies, they, they do kind of, yeah. it's not straight lines. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so there are really interesting design problems there. Exactly. And on the right, you see the late version of the Eiffeland E21 as he was driven from the middle to the end in 1972. Uh, I'm telling you this because the car uh, changed its design practically completely from the beginning to the end because the Colani design was very spectacular, very beautiful, but had uh, two big uh, problems. It was uh, too heavy and also it, the, the engine didn't get uh, enough uh, air and mm -hmm. overheated even in uh, cold uh, temperatures. So they had to go away Uh, from the original Colani design, practically using the, uh, the, the normal uh, March design. Uh, the only exception has been uh, this uh, round uh, cockpit and uh, the back mirror. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm just wondering how they managed to convince him to, to work on this project. Uh, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you, if you know how that happened, but I mean, it seems yeah. uh, interesting. So was that maybe through the Swiss connection? Uh, to, to... I, I think uh, Kolani um, was a person who wanted to do everything. So, uh, oh, so they probably I, just said, do you want to design a Formula One car? <laughs> Yes. Round Formula uh, One car, yes. <laughs> well, uh, yes, and I, I'm not completely uh, uh, found uh, mm -hmm. who, uh, how the contact uh, had been established, but I could imagine that uh, he even contacted them or mm -hmm. offered them, off, I'm working uh, for free because now, uh, now 72, I want to do a Formula One car and I, I, I do it for you because I want to do it and maybe he was... I mean, he was a very famous designer at mm. that year. So uh, a small team as Eiffeland, I wouldn't, I would assume normally could not have afforded uh, uh, paying him. So maybe he did it for free or, or a, a special discount because he wanted to do a Formula One uh, car at that time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. For example, uh, 
later uh, in the uh, end of the 1980s, uh, he had the idea he wanted to break a speed record in the Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was his idea. Uh, due to this, uh, he worked um, together. Uh, he contacted um, a company called Lotec, who is a tuner of uh, luxury cars. They used a Ferrari Testarossa and uh, Luigi Colani did this uh, design for the car. And with this, it could uh, reach 351 uh, kilometers uh, per hour, which at that time was a, a speed record for, uh, for a car on the, on the Salt Lake. Also, yeah. besides the design, they changed the engine uh, to a twin turbo, five liter, 12 cylinder. And it's uh, the only car with lips, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it looks like it's, looks like it's got lips. <laughs> it uh, yeah, it's 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 yes. uh, this this is like really iconic, uh, one of the iconic cars, and uh, yeah, a lot of interesting. Uh, if you uh, there, are, uh, there is, I think, also interesting footage, presentation footage of it. Um, exactly. I I don't. I'm not completely sure if you would say that this car is beautiful, but it's iconic it's very different very uh, futuristic and uh, remember what i mentioned about colani's uh, character uh, they used uh, uh, the ferrari testarossa which testarossa means uh, red uh, cylinder heads and uh, his version of course he had to change the name to testa de aura meaning uh, golden cylinder heads so you always had to be the best and if you're uh, and uh, if you're googling a little bit and find some of the official uh, press photos uh, especially from the inside uh, the steering wheel of this car it's not having the uh, uh, cavallo rampante the uh, ferrari logo but it has something like a pop uh, uh, pop version of his uh, his head uh, so you see uh, uh, Colani smiling at you on the steering wheel. So he again, he, he likes being somehow in the middle of everything. So he, uh, he was a, really a, a champion in, in market, his own brand, the uh, Colani brand. So he, mm -hmm. he has been hundreds of time in TV interviews. Uh, and again, he did everything and... and uh, Again, he had the idea, I wanted to break this uh, speed record. I want to do it in style with a Ferrari, so I do it. And due to this, I could imagine that it was similar with the Eiffelland team that he said, I want to do a Formula One car, let's do it. Uh, I, uh, and you not even have to pay me or not that much at least. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. So now we are talking all the time about the car and finally, here it is, and uh, this is uh, the, late, the late version, uh, practically using uh, the uh, normal March uh, design, only left of the original Colani design is the uh, cockpit and the uh, rear mirror, quite iconic uh, in the middle, quite high, so similar, uh, a little bit similar as maybe the halo where you also have it uh, this one uh, stringed directly uh, in front of you. Yeah, in, is, in, uh, in the 70s, we saw several designs like that, uh, right? Uh, yeah. With, with uh, Miro being quite lifted. Exactly. And uh, so this was uh, what uh, Coloni uh, uh, brought into Formula One, as you uh, rightly said. It was not a completely uh, new design, 
Here on the right, we see um, the Alfa Romeo 33 uh, um, endurance uh, prototype. And you see these cars, they also had this high rear mirror, not completely in the middle, but on the middle uh, left. So a quite similar concept, what I assume has inspired uh, Colani. I must say, unfortunately, I didn't uh, found a photo of the original design, which uh, we are able to show you here. If again, if you're Googling, the information is just a click away, you find some photos of the original design. So uh, what has to do the job here is uh, a small drawing. And unfortunately, I'm not the biggest artist, but I think you have an idea how the original cars looks like. And uh, again, that's pretty good. Uh, That's a lot better than I would have <laughs> done <laughs> because I have no drawing talent whatsoever. <laughs> who, who knows? Uh, so you see uh, the, uh, the vision from uh, Colani, everything has to be round and you see a quite uh, round car. Uh, but let's say if you compare it again with the Alfa Romeo on the right, it's not that unusual, it looks a little bit similar as especially this 1971 sports prototype also had a quite uh, round uh, design. So uh, as Colani looked very much uh, into Italian design, he worked with Alfa Romeo before, uh, he definitely has known this car so consciously or subconsciously it may uh, have uh, has inspired him for the design of the Eiffelland uh, E21, mm -hmm. which is my personal interpretation. Uh, I never got any official statement about this. Also interesting, uh, Rolf Stommelen, uh, he was uh, active uh, for Alfa Romeo from 1970 to 1972. So he drove this, this Alfa Romeo prototypes with the high uh, rear mirrors. Uh, because interestingly, uh, he stated that he didn't like it, uh, the rear mirror of the, uh, of the uh, Formula One car. Uh, even though uh, he should have been a little bit used to it as his Alfa Romeos had a quite similar uh, design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, as we already pointed out in the beginning, uh, the Eiffelland uh, Formula One team was not a big uh, success. Uh, also, uh, also because uh, his factory burned down uh, later in 1972 and this was also when he lost uh, a little bit the interest in motorsports or at least he lost uh, uh, the budget uh, to uh, support this team because later on uh, even in the next two years he never returned to Formula 1 but he still uh, had some uh, cars in Formula Sports including one uh, with a Toyota engine. So he still had been active in uh, motorsports, but never in the highest class in uh, Formula One. Okay, the last race, uh, and I will show you then in the next slide, the results had been uh, Austria. After, and after this, uh, he had to, uh, to uh, leave uh, Formula One because uh, they had been uh, out of budget, especially after the fire. Um, as he couldn't um, 
pay the salary of his driver, Rolf Stommelen, uh, he, got, uh, he got the car as payment. Um, he may have tried uh, maybe on his own to continue the season because he had the car, he had the experience, he had the Formula One license, but unfortunately he couldn't uh, get a sponsor. And uh, again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, German companies didn't like the, to invest into uh, motorsports in the beginning of the 1970s. So he had no luck, he could not continue on his own. Uh, through Bernie Ecclestone, he sold this car to, uh, John, to Watson. John Watson. Yeah, that's quite a continued. famous story. That, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> who's quite well known. At that time, uh, John Watson was not in Formula One, if I'm correct, but he was driving in non-official Formula One races, including uh, Formula 5000. So uh, he just, uh, used the car still two more times until uh, he crashed it. Uh, in that way that it was unable, that uh, they had been unable to repair it. And it was only four years later, late, sorry, four, less, four years later, where Schumann's former racing mechanic, Edwin uh, Derrick, this, uh, found this car in the UK on a, at a scrap dealer, which was specialized on racing cars. He bought it quite uh, cheap and rebuilt it, especially as the body was damaged. And unfortunately, uh, they, uh, sorry, luckily they still had, uh, had been able to find a copy uh, available at uh, Luigi Colani's studio, not um, longer uh, usable, but uh, at least it helped them a little bit to restore the design. And I think this is also the reason why they restored it to the late version and not to the original version, which would have been much more spectacular but the molds had not been available at, at Colani, so it was not uh, possible, at least not with a limited uh, budget as uh, Eric, Erwin Derrick had at that moment. Yeah, but we're still lucky that at least uh, this uh, later version was restored because considering yeah. that it was basically, yeah, so yeah, it was damaged beyond repair. Um, normally, like when you have a one-off car like this, uh, it's normally not getting repaired. But uh, in this case, at least uh, we're lucky to have the mu museum version uh, of this car. Exactly. And uh, the good thing is uh, this car is still uh, from time to time uh, at the classic motorsports events. So it is still in a condition uh, that it can be driven. And uh, so you see it at the different events. So it's not only standing maybe in a garage or in a museum, but it's still on the racetrack and I still think uh, it's, it's very good because this is the only one of its kind. And uh, so this story gets not uh, completely forgetten, forgotten about the Eiffelland uh, Formula One team. Let's see uh, a little bit the results. Uh, you see here the Eiffelland team and I compared with the March team because uh, practically the car uh, is a march, they just uh, changed uh, the body. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1972, March, uh, the factory team, they had two very famous drivers, very fast drivers with uh, Ronnie Patterson and the young uh, Niki Lauda. Niki Lauda was uh, at that point still the second driver. And uh, quite famously, he later said that this was the worst car he ever drove. <laughs> So uh, we have a car, a factory car, uh, which hadn't been the best car 
but uh, it was still a factory car and they mm -hmm. had two very fast uh, drivers. So if you compare the Eiffelland team, again, a team with four, five people working for and one mm -hmm. and only one driver. So I think uh, the, uh, the comparison is not that negative. They're practically always uh, in, in the same range, uh, maybe mm -hmm. uh, sometimes uh, Rolf Stammelen was slightly behind them, sometimes he was between them, between uh, Ronnie Peterson and Nicky Lauder, and uh, on two occasions he uh, even uh, was the fastest uh, one in the Monaco Grand Prix, where Rolf Stammelen came in as the 10th, uh, and uh, Ronnie Peterson only 11th, and Nicky Lauder 16th. And on the uh, non-official uh, race at uh, Brands Hatch, where Stommelin had been 11th, uh, while Ronnie Peterson only came in as the 12th. So if you see the results, uh, it's quite uh, impressive what they did with a car which uh, at the beginning was practical, uh, undrivable, not only because it overheated, uh, but also because the car was very fast, was uh, thanks to its aerodynamics very fast on the straights, but uh, very difficult uh, in the curves. And that's the reason why from race to race, at least in the second half, they changed uh, the body and, uh, and uh, took parts of the original Colani design away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, very, yeah, in, in quite a few places, they're very, very similar. You can, you can tell, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And if you think uh, how much people are working for March, mm -hmm. uh, how many for Eiffelland, this is really impressive for a small team in the very first year. But unfortunately, the factory uh, burned down. So Austria mm -hmm. was the last race and the last three races had been skipped. Uh, John Watson uh, used the car uh, and uh, two um, races. The first one, the players, number six, uh, uh, if I'm correct, was in Ireland and then mm -hmm. John, the John Player Challenge Trophy had been in Brands Hatch. Uh, the first, uh, for the first race, he not qualified uh, because uh, for some reason he lost uh, the ferry to Ireland, so his car not arrived in time. Mm -hmm. But in the second one, he did quite good and became sixth at this event, which was not Formula One regulation, but very similar as it was uh, Formula 5000 called in the beginning of the 1970s. Okay, so far to Eiffelland, what's still missing? The question, what is the team's legacy? Uh, to mm -hmm. be honest, it's the name is quite, and the story also is quite uh, forgotten. Uh, mm -hmm. Quite a coincidence, uh, I found out there had been like last month a short documentary on German TV in uh, 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 a special episode of the Sportschau as it's known to Germans. Uh, so uh, I can uh, include the link. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it is only in German, but there are interviews uh, with uh, the mechanics, with uh, Günther Ricci's wife, quite uh, interesting, only around uh, 10 minutes. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, I think uh, it uh, helped a little bit uh, for other German, uh, small German teams to come uh, forward. I think the most famous one of them must uh, is uh, the Zagspeed team, which have been uh, very successful in touring car races before they entered Formula One. 
they drove the uh, the Ford Capri in the iconic uh, black, yellow, red fire design. Um, and yeah, yeah, similar, Peters I, is very yeah. Uh, Peters is very famous. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, they've been quite uh, quite some time uh, in Formula One. Half a decade. Uh, they've been famous because they looked very similar to the Marlboro team uh, with their livery. And last year they tried a Japanese engine, which not really worked out. Uh, but normally they've been a quite good team uh, because we need these these small teams for for young drivers to come in or also to have a full uh, field. Similar to um, Eiffelland, uh, also this team uh, had been based in the Eiffel, so near the uh, Nürburgring. Other smaller teams are, is uh, ATS, RTS, uh, which is not uh, to mix up with the, not Italian, the, Italian. <laughs> with the yeah. Italian one, which have been founded uh, uh, by the former Ferrari engineers. This is a, a complete different team, RTS, uh, and uh, they uh, manufacture uh, wheels, uh, the same as uh, Real, what also uh, had been uh, around in the 1980s with the blue and yellow design. So I think uh, Eiffelland, uh, they at least had uh, for small teams to get the idea, yes, Formula One, this is something which could be done. So it could be, and uh, I'm, I'm sure, it has been a motivation uh, for people to think that also uh, as a small German team, I can uh, go and enter Formula One. Important because many, many, many years we hadn't had any German teams in Formula One at that uh, time. Mm -hmm. And another thing which stays around a little bit uh, longer, until at least until the end of uh, the 1970s, is the uh, high uh, rear mirror. Uh, which you see on both of these uh, car, the Alfa Romeo uh, 33 from 1976 mm -hmm. and also the one from 1974. Uh, very beautiful cars, which you can see uh, today in uh, Milano at the Alfa Romeo uh, Museum. Again, if you're in a city, this is really a place to go as it's one of the most uh, beautiful car museums uh, on the planet, I think. So, so uh, here you see the car mirrors the high ones, uh, they continued being uh, used and also Rolf Stommelen uh, had been uh, continued with, with them as he drove these Alfa Romeos until nine, end of 1972. Yeah, so if uh, COVID uh, restrictions permit, then definitely a great place to visit. Exactly. And with this, we are closing again uh, the chapter uh, to the Eiffelland uh, team. And I hope uh, you liked uh, that we also speak some, from time to time uh, about the small players, maybe the drivers who had not been always on the first positions or also this, uh, the smaller teams, because I think uh, it's important that, uh, that we have them in the sports and uh, Formula One it uh, became only that famous because we also have this been uh, with people very motivated, doing the best with practically very limited budget.
Yeah, with that, I also want to, uh, to thank Patrick because, uh, as you can see, I was mostly silent uh, for this episode because it's not really something I know a lot about. So, um, so Patrick, thank you so much. That was uh, super interesting and uh, really entertaining uh, in terms of, you know, uh, understanding uh, the history of this team and uh, all the people that were involved. So thanks a lot. Yep. And, um, thanks to you. But nevertheless, I mean, you spoke more about uh, our data <laughs> analytics episode, which we had the last time. No worries. Yeah. So uh, yeah, with that, uh, thank you all. And uh, yeah, do let us know your comments. Maybe we missed something. Maybe we made some mistakes. We are only human. So... <laughs> So do let us know uh, if, if you spot something. We are obviously very interested in your opinion. And uh, thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.